Hey everybody, this is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman back with you for the Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom call, the GREEP, or GREE-GREE, number 139. Uh, we have been doing this since April of 2020 and a lot of history, uh, a lot of water has passed under and over the dam. Uh, we're starting out with 36 people. Uh, it's great to have everybody with us. We have a tremendous honor today of having the former governor of Alabama, Don Siegelman, with us. And Don has an incredible story to tell and some real direction to give us uh, on into the future. Don, you're a tremendous inspiration. I'm sure you'll join uh, Dennis Bernstein on his radio show to come and many others. Uh, we're just very uh, honored to have you with us. We're also gonna be joined by jo uh, John Brakey, uh, the great election protection activist in Arizona, who has a lot to share with you, uh, Governor Siegelman. And um, so it's gonna be an action-packed first hour. We're also joined by Vinnie DiStefano, um, who with Wendy Lederman works uh, very uh, prominently on the Julian Assange case. And uh, uh, it's very powerful that you're all with us uh, uh, to, get, to get off to the start. Uh, John Brakey has just joined us from Arizona. And um, he has had, uh, there are a few people in the world who have had as big an impact as John Brakey has had on our elections in this country. And uh, it's a very great honor to be able to tie you two together. John, uh, how you doing? Wave to the audience here. And the second hour, we're gonna start talking uh, uh, as we often do about nuclear power and renewable energy. I had the uh, great misfortune uh, last Friday to actually see the Oliver Stone movie on nuclear power. It's even worse than you could imagine, uh, an absolute abomination. And we're joined by Ron Leonard, one of the great uh, godfathers of the renewable energy in industry, uh, a major player in solar and, and uh, wind. And he will uh, be talking with me and others uh, about uh, the energy situation in this country. We're also joined here uh, by Emily Levy. Hi, Emily, the founder and, and leader of the Scrutineers organization, which deals deeply in election protection and uh, other such issues. So, uh, and I wanna say that we're joined by your fellow Alabaman, a, a native of Mobile, I believe, uh, Ruth Strauss. Uh, Ruth, I'm gonna admit, uh, unmute you. Uh, you are probably the only two people on the call from Alabama. Uh, Ruth, do you wanna say hi to Governor Siegelman? Can we hear you, Ruth? Uh, all right, we'll get this uh, uh, squared away soon. So uh, uh, Governor Siegelman, um, you were governor uh, at the, of, of Alabama um, at the turn of the century. Um, you had a horrendous experience uh, with Karl Rove and the so-called justice system that we'll get to in a couple of minutes. But before we start with you, I do want to introduce you to Hetty Tripp in St. Cloud, Minnesota at the other end of the country. Uh, Hetty is a great um, election activist and uh, has wants to give us a three minute report on um, a, a, a study being done on election rights. So uh, Asian Americans in the 2022 midterm elections um, Hetty, can you tell us what this is about, please? Yes, and I will do that very quickly. This is a new report, an insight into 
how Asian Americans voted in, in the 2022 midterm. It was done by AAJC, that's Asian Americans Advancing Justice, and that is based in Washington, DC. Now, first of all, as most of you know, the term Asian Americans just lumps together everybody from, you know, more than 50 countries that are in Asia and uh, um, probably thousands of dialects and languages and cultures. Slago, you have firsthand in your travels, especially in Indonesia, of how that is. And I am originally from the island of Singapore, but here in America, Asians are lumped together. I'm going to jump uh, to a few slides. Let's see, four. Um, uh, they did the survey from November to December, 2022, with 2,800 Asian Americans. And I, what I'm doing today for you is just to give you um, just a little a window into how this is important as you share, um, um, as you support Asian groups who work in increasing voting in these communities. Now, Mike Hirsch has the original uh, slides, the presentation and the report. So if you need more details, uh, please go to him. Um, I'm gonna go to slide 10. One of the issues was that one in six felt threatened when they voted. And the highest were Asian, Asian American Indians and those aged from 18 to 60 to 30 and those with high school degrees or less. So keep that in mind. Asian Indians, probably because uh, they were targeted uh, during 9-11. Now, uh, two in three voted early um, and did absentee voting. Um, this is a little bit difficult to try and find the slides for you. Uh, let me go to slide, slide 13. Yeah, slide you have to remember that Henry, we're on the radio, so you want to uh, be very right. explicit about showing yes. us. Right. So these are the top reasons for voting early and absentee. The, and this is coming from these Asian Americans that were surveyed. Long lines, limited hours during election day, COVID, of course, uh, flexibility um, of uh, being absent, election day scheduling conflicts, so that is uh, uh, included, harassment and intimidation. As I said, one in six feel um, threatened. And then uh, again, uh, one in 10, unsure of where to vote. So intimidation was clearly a Correct. significant factor. 12% uh, of people being intimidated, virtually every uh, election in this country is decided by less than 12%. So mm -hmm. uh, clearly it can have an impact on the elections. Correct. Um, okay. let, me, let me do two more slides, 37. I'm going forward to slide 37. Sorry about this. Five, six, and seven. All right. Uh, and here is, I think, the most important in terms of working with Asian American communities is in language assistance. Again, you know, there's so many languages uh, and cultures that you have to reach uh, Asian Americans through their own language. Notice that naturalized voters slightly likelier than US uh, voters to say that the language assistant is helpful because they're still working with their own language. 
And um, that makes sense, right, Sluggo? Yes, yes. And in fact, this is a significant um, factor in, our, in, in 2024. In 2004 in Ohio, many uh, precincts, which were majority um, uh, Spanish speaking, mm. were not provided with Spanish speaking uh, assistance as was required by law. Mm -hmm. And this was and a major complaint about the legitimacy of the election in Ohio 2004, is mm -hmm. that Spanish speaking districts were not supplied with uh, poll workers who could speak Spanish. So right. obviously this carries over to the Asian Correct. language community Correct. as well. And, these, and that's just one language, right? And this is right. as many other levels. And then I want to just go to the last uh, slide. Sorry about this. And again, you can uh, contact uh, Mike Harsh to find out uh, the details in this. All right, so here is the uh, report's conclusion. To be able to have access to the vote, this is what Asian Americans were saying, uh, universal, no excuse, absentee voting must be available to them. Older people vote by mail. They do want to do early voting because again of that intimidation and providing language access. Also, they were saying there was a lot of what they felt was uh, uh, disinformation. They were, they were wanting more accurate information on candidates and also better candidates. That makes sense too. <laughs> well, you know what Mark Twain said? Okay. Uh, if, if God had wanted us to have elections, he would have provided us with candidates. <laughs> uh, community education and engagement. This is interesting. They were getting most of their information through Facebook and YouTube. Uh, so oh these are the two pieces that um, they were getting that. So that's basically it. Very fast, uh, Slago, for you. But the uh, details can be uh, obtained from Mike. Thank you very much, Hetty Tripp. Uh, I, I think that this information actually, though it comes from the Asian American community, is pretty generic mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and really applies to all elections. So we will use that. Thank you. Uh, George Ripley has asked if there's a link to the report. Maybe you can put it in the chat. That would be great. I will leave that to Mike to do that. Okay, Mike and Steve, if you can put the link to that report in the chat. Thank you, Hetty, that was very helpful. Uh, we really appreciate it, okay? And it's always great to see you, Ah. Uh, uh, okay, okay, thank you so much. Um, uh, Governor Siegel, and we're gonna welcome you back. I wanna <clears throat> have the honors done by a native Alabaman. Is that what, is it Alabaman or Alabamian? Uh, Ruth Strauss, do you wanna say hi to your former governor here? I do, and um, I, I also wanna say that uh, when my um, high school girlfriends got together for lunch uh, last Christmas, we were at the Bluegill, which is a seafood dive. And right at the register, there was a T-shirt um, in, a, in a glass box that said, Free Don Siegelman. <laughs> I just thought <laughs> it, it was great. And uh, I'll make a comment uh, at the end, too, about where people can find more information. You know, Scott Horton articles. Thank you. And Ruth, you grew up in Mobile, right? Okay, well, I, all right. You're from Mobile? Got it. I am. Yeah, we both are, yes. You're from Mobile too. Well, maybe you knew uh, the Ruth Strauss family in Mobile. <laughs> okay, so Don Siegelman, 
you are the former governor of Alabama. You have an incredible story to tell. <clears throat> Can you uh, um, give us a, 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 a sort of a thumbnail of the picture of your career and what was done to you and um, what you want to tell us uh, about today? Well, it's, <clears throat> you know, I, I'd rather not necessarily dwell on, on my case, although uh, I'll go through it real quickly. I was... Uh, uh, I was Secretary of State, Attorney General, Lieutenant Governor, Governor. I had landed five automobile plants. Uh, we had secured the largest uh, single land purchase uh, to, to protect the Mobile Delta. Uh, I had been touted by the Kiplinger letter as a dark horse candidate to run against George W. Bush in 2004. All I needed to do was win re-election, and that's when... Uh, Alabama, uh, little known as a as a being important in national elections, became a political battleground. Um, I was uh, investigated by Carl Rove's client, the state attorney general. I was uh, investigated by the U.S. attorney, who was uh, vetted by by Rove and appointed by Bush, uh, who was married to my my. Uh, Republican opponents, uh, he was, her husband was my Republican opponent's campaign manager. The U.S. attorney's husband was my Republican opponent's campaign manager. Um, the, um, uh, the, the federal judge that was overseeing my case was the, the trial judge, uh, was one with whom I'd had political battles in the past, um, he, of course, was vetted by Rove and appointed by Bush as well. Um, the, um, the, you know, I, I was indicted for something 113 former state attorneys general said was never a crime in, in the United States. When I was convicted, um, I realized that the that our system was flawed, that it, that it could be gained. Um, I was, at that moment, I reflected on the people whose execution dates I had set as attorney general. And I recalled some of the people who had applied for clemency while I was governor. And I asked God, you know, in my own way to forgive me if I had made a mistake. I'm not even sure what I meant by that at that time. But, you know, after delving into what had happened, I, I knew I knew why and who was behind it, but I didn't real I didn't know how I could be convicted of something that was only contrived in the minds of the prosecutors. Um, I found that 99 that prosecutors get 99% of the indictments they seek uh, across the board, state, local, federal. Uh, on average, they get 99% of the indictments they seek. This happens because in 1976, during the cry for war on crime and the war on drugs, the Supreme Court responded with uh, by giving prosecutors what amounts to total immunity from civil liability. 
meaning that they can present false evidence, false testimony, withhold exculpatory evidence without fear of being uh, held accountable civilly. The, the Brennan Center did a study uh, showing that in 1976, our, our incarceration rate hovered around 200,000 and then skyrocketed to 1.6 million down the road. Um, the, the reason prosecutors can get 99% of the indictments they seek is one, the Supreme Court decision in 1976, giving them total immunity. Uh, Congress gave them immunity through the Federal Tort Claims Act. And grand juries are a secret proceeding where there is no lawyer for the, for the victim or for the target. There is no judge to oversee uh, what the prosecutors are doing. So they have free reign to do whatever they want to get the outcome they want out of a grand jury. It's interesting to note that while prosecutors get 99% of the indictments they want, that, percent, <clears throat> that percentage drops precipitously when uh, white police officers kill a black motorist uh, through the use of excessive force. So we need to, to, to think about how we can bring this under control. One, you know, the Supreme Court is not likely to act to reverse what they did in 1976. So it's going to be up to Congress uh, and state leaders to, to make changes in our laws to restrict the power and the abuse uh, of power by prosecutors. The, the, caval the acceptance of uh, prosecutorial immunity, I think, is underscored by the argument that was made by President uh, Obama's Solicitor General, Elena Kagan, on January the 4th, 2010, when she had her deputy argue to the U.S. Supreme Court, and I quote, that U.S. citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. U.S. citizens do not have a constitutional right not to be framed. That was that story was broken by David Savage, the legal correspondent of the Los Angeles Times on January the 5th, 2010. The to to bring this this home, I I, I wanted to go back to to, to voting rights and and in the uh, America's history on voting rights uh, started out <laughs> in a not so, not not in, in not such a good way. I mean, we were we were we 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 restricted the rights of Native Americans, women, and blacks, and of course, it got worse after the after the Civil War uh, when Jim Crow laws and constitutions were put in place and. Then the, the uh, Ku Klux Klan vigilantes uh, uh, took to the streets and killed uh, untold thousands of, lynched untold thousands of uh, Black women, men, and, and children. Um, the, the effort to reverse that um, came to light, I think, in, in large part because of the 
the blacks in Selma, Alabama, uh, under the leadership of John Lewis and, and, and Dr. King, who took to the streets to ensure that the, that the story of the, the need, the fight for voting rights had to be told. They understood that all of our duties and responsibilities are decided by people who, whom we elect. So the right to vote in their judgment was the most precious right. And that, that movement that started in Selma marched on across the Edmund Pettus Bridge to uh, the steps of the state capitol where Dr. King said that they would keep marching until George Wallace and the, the, the racist uh, and race baiters you know, trembled away. They marched on to the, to the United States Congress where uh, the Voting Rights Act was passed and then to the chambers of the Supreme Court where one vote, uh, one person, one vote ruling was, uh, was decreed. It's interesting because Dr. King during that time in 1968 said that the uh, moral, moral arc of the universe uh, bends toward justice. He said it was long, but it bends towards justice. When Dr. King died in 1968, and we're still waiting for the arc of the moral universe to, to bend enough so that we can get the John Lewis Voting Rights Act passed. Uh, George Floyd died a couple of years ago, uh, but we're still waiting for the arc of the moral universe to bend enough to pressure Congress to pass restraints against the excessive use of force. And to show you how, how all of this comes together, I, I wrote a piece for the, for the Washington Post that was published last week. Alabama has 166 people on death row. 146 of those uh, should not be on death row. Let me explain. 115 of those, 115 of the 146 are there because they were sentenced by non-unanimous juries. Non-unanimous juries is something that was contrived in the 1870s uh, when black folks first became eligible to serve on juries, whites decided that they could no longer have unanimous juries because it meant that a single black juror could prevent someone from being executed. So non-unanimous juries grew out of the, the old Jim Crow era. Yet in Alabama today, we have 115 people on death row who were sentenced by non-unanimous juries. Secondly, we have 31 people on death row based on what's called judicial overrides. That means where the jury decided life without, par without parole, but the judge decided, no, I'm going to go ahead and kill you anyway. Uh, Alabama outlawed judicial overrides in 2017, yet we still have people on death row waiting to be executed under a, under a process that is not legal in any state in the country, including Alabama. It makes absolutely no sense. Again, how do, how do we, how do we uh, focus attention and, and bring change 
the Equal Justice Initiative did a study that showed that judicial overrides hovered around 7% in non-election years, but then but in election years when judges in Alabama ran for election, judicial overrides jumped to 30%. I think that says it all about judicial overrides. The Equal, the uh, Death Penalty Information Center did a study in, in February of 2021 that studied executions in the, in the United States since 1976. And they concluded that for every eight people executed, 8.3 people executed, one person was exonerated, which means that if you look at the statistics, that means we've been getting it wrong about 12% of the time. You know, whether you, whether you believe in the death penalty or not, if you believe that the death penalty is a deterrent, I think we can all agree that if we're going to execute people, we ought to at least be trying to execute the person who actually committed the crime. Um, the Death Penalty Information Center went on to, in their study to show that of the people exonerated from death row, 80% were exonerated because of prosecutorial or police misconduct. And of those people exonerated for prosecutorial or police misconduct, nearly 90%, I think it was 87.9 or 89.7% were black people. So that, again, it says that prosecutors were using false evidence, false testimony, or, or withholding exculpatory evidence to target Black people for murders they did not commit. In, in 2010, the case that was argued to the Supreme Court involved two young Black teenagers who were targeted by police investigators because they did not want to go down a trail that led them to a white suspect. They convinced a young black man whom they had picked up at a used car lot or someplace, and they, had, they threatened him with prosecution if he did not point the finger at these two black teenagers. These two people spent 25 years in prison for a crime they clearly did not commit. With that, let me conclude by saying, I, I ran for, for governor because I believe that every child, regardless of where they were born or to whom, every child ought to have the right to reach their God-given potential through education. That means universal early learning. That means offering free college to any, any kid that stays in school and stays out of trouble and makes their grades. I don't believe that the, that the, that the 2020 election uh, was decided because people went to bed at night worrying about Donald Trump. I think they went to bed at night worrying about how they were going to pay their bills, how their parents were going to live, whether their parents and grandparents were going to have enough money for food, for shelter, or, for, or to pay their medical expenses. We live in the richest country in the world. I think we can all, we should all agree, <clears throat> I think, that health care should be a right, not a privilege, that everyone, regardless 
no one should go to bed homeless uh, or hungry or without health care. Not, not those in prison, not the disadvantaged, um, and not the poor. Uh, we voted for a president who believes in, in justice, who believes in social justice, equal justice, racial justice, environmental justice, and in criminal justice reform. Clearly, <clears throat> something is wrong when we have nearly 2 million people incarcerated in this country, many of them, most of them, in fact, enter prison without any job skills and leave the same way. We have got to turn our prison system right side up from the, from the days of the, the cries for a war on crime and a war on drugs. There was one, one focus, and that was to put people in prison and keep them off the streets. It was a, a system for warehousing, not for rehabilitation, not for education, not to give them social skills or job skills. We have got to ensure that beginning on day one, those people that we lock up, look, it, <clears throat> prisons may not be the best place for us to reverse or change behavior, but it's our less, last best chance to do that. Secondly, we've got to repeal the immunity in the Federal Torts Claims Act. And I think we need to give serious thought to putting a, a lawyer for the victim of the use of excessive force by police in a grand jury. Let me ask this question to those listening. How many of you believe that uh, uh, George Zimmerman would have been set free in the Trayvon Martin case if Benjamin Crump had been sitting in the grand jury uh, as a check on truth to what the prosecutor was presenting against George Floyd. The second point I want to make is grand jurors, unlike juries for civil and criminal trials, grand jurors are not voir dire. They're not questioned about their prejudices. For all we know, the, the grand jurors in the Breonna Taylor case um, the grand jurors might have been related to the police or members of the Klan themselves because no one was allowed to ask them the serious questions that would have ensured that they were fair and impartial. So we, we need to press Congress and state legislators to institute a process where grand jurors are questioned. And in my view, there ought to be a lawyer present for the target and for the victim, if it's a victim of the, the use of excessive force, so we can have a check on truth of what the prosecutors are presenting in, in grand juries. Let me conclude by saying, I believe that, that this country can become whatever it is that we want it to be and what it should be. But it starts with the right to vote. The right to vote today is under attack in the capital of Montgomery, Alabama. They're about to pass a bill that would make it a, a criminal offense to, for an employer to hand a worker an application for an absentee ballot. Instead of making it easier to vote, we are doing everything we can to make it more difficult, which means that the job for us is even that much harder. I believe that change will come for the better. That arc of the moral universe will bend toward justice when we get out and work hard enough and long enough 
to bend the arc so that we can elect people to public office who will make this state, this, this state, all states in our country, everything that we know it can and should be. That's, 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 I'm sorry, I got, I got carried away, but uh, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Governor Siegel. And you're, you're a, a, an inspiration and um, a, a truly a great role model. I know you endured tremendous injustice um, um, in, in opposing Karl Rove. We, we had our own experiences with Karl Rove in um, uh, Ohio 2004, same time who's going after you. And um, uh, you, I'm not going to um, uh, impress you, but if you want to explain what you went through at some point, uh, that I'm sure we would all welcome it. But your, you have a, uh, an op-ed. Uh, Eileen uh, sent me the link to your op-ed on, on the death penalty. I noticed you were uh, joined in your opposition to the death penalty by another former governor of Alabama. Is that right? Yes, uh, Robert Bentley is a Republican, and I I, uh, I took the draft down to, to him, and he was more than happy to sign on. And, uh, you know, I live in a uh, Republican state. It's, uh, the House and Senate is dominated by Republicans, and we have a Republican governor. So it was, uh, it was good to have a, a Republican former governor, uh, Robert Bentley, joined me in this editorial. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we're fighting an uphill battle, but I think the, uh, you know, if you believe what Dr. King, King said, uh, we have to hope that the arc of the moral universe will bend toward uh, justice in the case of those on death row in Alabama. Well, it always astounds me how people who claim to be pro-life um, can turn around and support the death penalty. I mean, we are 100% certain that the death penalty re results in the death of innocent people. Uh, there's simply no doubt about that. And, and I won't go further. I mean, it's very clear what we're well, saying. Well, let me, let, me, let me just, let me just, uh, just remark on that one point. Uh, while I was attorney general, I had the I got. I was able to get one person off the death row. Uh, I, I was. We were able to find exculpatory evidence, and his name was Johnny Harris. Um, and I had an occasion to uh, spend a few minutes with him, some uh, just a few years ago, and uh, it was very touching. Uh, it was an, a very emotional and powerful encounter that we had, but. While I was governor in the year 2000, uh, there, were, there was an execution. I had the, after becoming more aware of, of, the, uh, of the power of prosecutors and their ability to withhold exculpatory evidence, I was able to work with some interns from George, Georgetown and, and from other parts of the country to study the cases that came before me as governor. And now 23 years later, after this execution that occurred in 2000, I believe that, that the person who was executed was wrongfully charged, wrongfully convicted, and wrongfully executed. 
um, it is it was it became clear uh, uh, over the 23 years evidence started to emerge it wasn't the evidence wasn't there in when I was governor but over the last 23 years evidence started to emerge that the prosecutor withheld exculpatory evidence so this man Freddie Lee Wright would probably have been convicted but he certainly would not have been convicted of capital murder had the prosecution played fair. Boy, that's that's something else. I do want to say, if I read it correctly, I thought I saw, and somebody can correct me, that a news story today saying the governor DeSantis of Florida wants to allow the death penalty in <laughs> jury verdicts that are eight to four. That's right. Yeah. Words, he, is it his, it, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I call him Governor Ron DeSenseless, but anyway. <laughs> well, you're better than Trump with that one. That's good. He is. Um, well, thank you. Um, in his effort to be tough on, on crime, he joined Alabama in being the only state, as far as I know, and we've studied this, we can't find any other state that allows people to be sentenced to death based on a non-unanimous jury recommendation. Alabama has a, a 10 to 2 jury vote uh, for a death sentence, which is, you know, again, is a relic of the Jim Crow era. I mean, how we're living in 2023, for goodness sakes, and we're still using a method that was devised in the minds of racists after the Civil War, so it would make it easier for them to kill people. Man, it's just really um, uh, uh, earth-shattering. We have Bruce Strauss wants to say another word to you from Alabama, and then we uh, I want to go to John Brakey in Arizona. I want to make sure that you uh, know each other. Uh, Ruth, go ahead, and then John Brakey, please. Yeah, well, um, I just wanted to say that, Don, you're extremely principled because you did not mention at all the horror story that you went through. And people really should uh, go back and research Scott Horton, not the one that does anti-war, but the uh, professor of uh, international law at Columbia. And he did a series of articles in Harper's. And it really reads like, unfortunately, a mystery thriller, except the victim is Don. Um the other thing that's amazing is, as you know, everybody here knows that the uh, Supreme Court ruled against the people in Alabama who surprisingly wanted to get rid of gerrymandering to get another black district uh, to be represented. So the Supreme Court has not, you know, helped that situation. And finally, Paul Rove ended up being, I believe, president of University of Texas. So I do not want to smoke what they were smoking when they made that decision. Anyway, thank you so much, uh, Don. Yes, and, and uh, we could do a couple of shows on Carl Rowe, but we won't. And uh, Don, when uh, you know, people should know your story. If uh, well, let me, yeah, let me let me just mention the uh, I, I, of course, <laughs> this is I wrote a book called Stealing Our Democracy. It's a nonfiction. 
I named Karl Rove. I named a sitting judge on the 11th Circuit, who was Karl Rove's uh, political client, then the Attorney General of Alabama. Uh, I named the U.S. Uh, attorney uh, and, and explained exactly how they were conflicted. But the, the good part about the, uh, nonfiction is if you, if, you know, if it's, if it's true, you can print it. Well, I haven't been served in, in two years uh, with any kind of notice that they objected to anything I said. So I would encourage people, if you're interested in my story, you can buy the book or let, I, I really like the Audible book because uh, I do it. It's my own voice. They, you know, Amazon offered, you know, people to read it for me, but I wanted to read it myself. So and the other thing, there's there was a documentary done by an independent filmmaker. It's a lot shorter than my, than my Audible book. Audible book is about 12 hours, but the documentary is about an hour and a half. And it's uh, it's entitled uh, uh, Atticus versus the Architect. And it's I think it's still available on Amazon for like $3. So Atticus versus the Architect or Stealing Our Democracy. And you can, you can, you know, occasionally I'll say something worth listening to. So if you want to follow me, you can do that uh, at Don Sutherland. Yeah. Okay, uh, Steve Caruso has graciously put put up stealing our democracy. Uh, I will definitely get it, and um, uh, we're really uh, grateful to you, Don, for your incredible courage. We have had uh, someone on with a parallel story, Steve Donziger. I don't know if Steve is with us today, but I don't know if you're familiar with Steve Donziger's. Uh, oh story. yeah, yeah, that's a terrible story. I mean, it's a yeah, yeah, he's he's. Uh, you guys are unfortunately in, in similar have been in similar situations. I want to introduce you to. We'll call on uh, Sue and uh, uh, Dennis. Uh, well, let me get uh, Dennis in a minute. Then we're going to uh, uh, do John Brakey. I know Dennis, you might have to run for your show. So can you introduce yourself to Don and make sure you get him on flashpoints? <laughs> Dennis Bernstein, go ahead. Are you unmuted? Let's unmute you. Uh, always frustrating. Oh, there you go. Uh, I'm unmuted. Dennis, are you Hi, good? Hi, Don. This is John Brakey. I got it. I got it. In 2008. Am I going on the wrong time? Okay. Wait, wait. Yeah, let me get Dennis on okay. first. Oh, okay. Dennis, Dennis usually has to run to his show. I'm going to be on uh, later, too. Go ahead, I, think you, I think you got me now, yes? Yeah. Good. Terrific. Governor, thank you uh, for the amazing work you've done. It's a lot of courage. I want to... I've spent a lot of years investigating sort of the the serious kind of voter fraud where black people throughout the south lose their right to vote they they try and report that they've been uh their church has been burned and it turns into you know uh an investigation of how it wasn't actually their church but they were committing voter fraud and so they had a fight with the next church over the way you know all the kinds of stories uh to avoid really giving people the right to vote now I'm watching, and I really wonder what you think about this, the way in which, for instance, in Jackson, Mississippi, and in Selma, Alabama, and the, you, we know that the the core of the uh, the Black community, the power is in the city, uh, and the white people control the state governments. And it does seem now that there is a new movement to usurp the power of the cities, of Black people in the cities, uh, so that, for instance, I mean, in Jackson, it's it, it turns into uh, a battle to have clean uh, drinking water. 
Don, mm -hmm. do you want to comment on that? Uh, Dennis, by the way, as I mentioned, is the host of the Flashpoint show, which is on at five o'clock uh, Pacific time in Berkeley and, uh, and uh, 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 syndicated nationwide. And I'll be uh, Dennis's guest uh, this evening, and I'm sure he'll have you on at another time. You want to comment yeah. on this? And then we'll go to well, John. Well, Dennis, yeah, you're on, you're, you're on the right track, of course. You know, and, and uh, you know, it makes it more difficult when you're in, in, a, uh, in a red state where, you know, most of the white people who are in, in power are Republicans. And, you know, they have very little contact with people in the inner city or in rural Alabama, for example. So there's, there is very little empathy um, or political reason for the majority of people in the House and Senate in Alabama uh, for them to have an interest in what is going on in these uh, smaller, particularly rural rural cities, and they are they are struggling, and they struggle with healthcare issues, and they, of course, struggle with uh, with having the resources to provide a, a decent education. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. You're you're. And I encourage you and applaud you for what you're doing. Well, be Thank sure you. and uh, you. exchange your contacts with Dennis so he can have you on, Don. He's a great, 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 and very important uh, uh, radio host. I want to, uh, uh, Sue and uh, Wendy and Mary, we'll get to you in a couple of minutes. I do want to, uh, did invite John Brakey to come on. Uh, uh, Governor John Brakey is one of our most important election protection activists. He's done tremendously powerful work in, in Arizona. And uh, John, will you introduce yourself to the governor, please? Well, absolutely. Governor, we've met before. It's an honor to see you again. I am glad that you're healthy and, and I'm sorry for everything you went through. I, I remember exactly because I've been doing this work now for 19 years and, and your case is one of the cases that I investigated. And I had the opportunity to go to Alabama in the 2017 for the Roy Moore election, which was just an incredible story that we won a court case in the morning. And uh, me and my lawyer, who is out of DC, Barack Obama's attorney, he's a, he's a major election expert across the country, Chris Sauter. We were driving from uh, Alabama to another city to go somewhere. And we got a phone call that they had appealed our case and they appealed it in like six hours and didn't even give us notice before they overturned it. And I just, we were just blown away by the whole thing. And then at the very end, Roy Moore was upset because they did do that because what we were trying to do and what I do is that our whole country has gone digital and these machines don't count the ballot, they count the picture. And, uh, and to make a long story short, Arizona, hopefully, even though our bill got vetoed by the governor and uh, uh, that we will have elections in my state that two days after the canvas, a precinct committee man or anybody can download a cast vote record for their precinct and then sit there and analyze. And then afterwards, after everything adds up really good, because, you know, we call this bill the big lie killer. We also call it the impunity buster. We take away anybody's impunity to steal by making the system transparent, trackable, publicly verified with a ballot library. 
and, and, and I hope to get your contact information after this to the show or whatever. Uh, I'm very close to Mimi Kennedy. You know, we have a forum that we're going to be doing Thursday night in Arizona that will be broadcast on Facebook, Twitter, and all over the place where we will have uh, uh, some really dignitaries in our state because, you know, uh, they my bill got vetoed, but believe it or not, I had three weeks to try to override it because they took a three-week lead, which is really incredible. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the Democrats, I, I, I was able because I, I'm a Democrat lifelong, okay? But my business card says very clearly what I do is not about the right or left. It's all about right and wrong. And I have to be nonpartisan in my work. And, uh, and it's interesting, uh, you know, how things are working. But anyway, getting back to it, you're a role model for me, sir. Everything oh. you've gone through and everything you've had to do. Uh, you know, I, I'm thankful that there's people out there like you who have heart and you didn't come out bitter. You came out making change and still fighting. You're a brother from a different mother to me. <laughs> well, who Thank knows? You. Maybe the same mother. You never know. I do want to well, say, I want to explain, uh, Governor Siegelman, that John Brakey has pioneered the method of digital ballot images where we rely on paper ballots, hand-marked paper ballots, which are then scanned into digital readers. And so the combination, because we in Ohio 2004 were victimized by Karl Rove um, in, in the presidential election. On election day, Karl Rove and George W. Bush in 2004 went one place they went to Columbus to talk to and give instructions to the uh, Secretary of State of Ohio as to how to deal with the uh, 2004 election, which we are 100% was, shall we say, had major discrepancies. And it was a lot of it in 2004, uh, most of it really was done on touchscreen voting machines, which were very easily flipped. Now, well, you know, and coming out of that, we went to paper ballots, handmarked paper ballots with digital scanners, which was the predominant mode of election in 2020. So this is a very successful um, election protection movement. And John Brakey has been at the heart of it. So go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Well, I was, I was just going to comment because uh, I'm sure you probably remember that, uh, you know, the 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 Kiplinger letter said that all I needed to do to, to be this dark horse candidate uh, in, the, in, the, in the fashion of Jimmy Carter or, or uh, Bill Clinton uh, to break the Republican stronghold on the South was to win my reelection in 2002. Um, and that's when uh, Carl Rove's client, the Attorney General Bill Pryor, started his investigation. Uh, the night of the election, I won. I was declared by Associated Press, CBS, NBC, all, all the networks as the winner. I went to bed. I was awakened about four o'clock in the morning uh, and by, by security telling me that uh, they were stealing the election in this small county in Alabama. What happened, uh, Carl Rove's deputy, her name was uh, Kelly Robertson, 
Uh, I think her name at the time was uh, Kelly Kimbrough, but uh, she's still around. She was the White House deputy for Karl Rove. She was in Alabama overseeing uh, and doing Karl Rove's work and was sitting at the desk with the Republican Party chairman when the uh, elections uh, results were, were uh, posted showing that I was going to win the election. They then called the probate judge, um, and within four minutes, uh, after, after the polls had closed, the poll workers and watchers had left, the media had left the courthouse. Four minutes later, a new set of returns were posted uh, with 6,000 of my votes uh, uh, being myster mysteriously vanished. They, uh, what was a, a telltale sign of, of voter fraud was that not a single down ballot race, not the lieutenant governor, state treasurer, auditor, U.S. senator, no other race was impacted by a single vote. But my my, my total, had, had, I, I had lost by a little over six, I mean, they had subtracted a little over 6,000 votes which swung the election to my Republican opponent. I asked for a hand recount of only one precinct. And the attorney general, Carl Rove's client, came in, seized the ballots, seized the cassette tapes, seized the, the, the scanners, and took everything to Montgomery. And none of that has been seen since. They then illegally certified my Republican opponent as the winner of the 2002 election. I say illegally. I, I, I believe that if we had had a recount, I would have won that election and the story would have been different. But that's when my trouble began because I told them at that point, okay, you've got me in a sort of a catch-22 because Alabama law said that you cannot contest an election unless you can prove that that there were enough illegal votes cast or enough legal votes not counted to make a difference in the outcome. Well, I couldn't do either of those because the attorney general had seized the ballots and wouldn't give them to us. So I said, okay, um, I can't contest the election because you stole it and uh, I'm gonna come back and fight again another day. And that's when the, uh, the, the heat started being turned up and I was convicted of something that, that never, you know, never happened. So um, anyway. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I want to say very quickly, we have 70 people on the call. Um, uh, we are ending the first hour of those of you listening in on um, uh, Progressive Radio Network uh, on Thursday evening. Um, we're going to switch over now. The second hour will not be on uh, the radio there. We can come to election protection 2024.org electionprotection2024.org to see uh, the continuation of this discussion uh, as you're probably going to be leaving PRN uh, right now. I want to stay with you, Don Siegelman. Uh, Sue Dorfman has a, a hand that wants to ask you a question, then Wendy and Mary. Uh, Sue Dorfman, go ahead, please. Hi. Let's get yeah. you Yes, Governor. My question is, is how do we get or how do you think the best way of getting attention paid to states such as Alabama, Mississippi and Arkansas in terms of the um, implications of what is happening in terms of voting rights in those states? And um, 
parenthetically, I'm wondering if you could just weigh in a minute or two about what you think of the current Mississippi governor's race. Well, I, 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 I really don't know anything about the Mississippi governor's race. I'm gonna have to leave that to people in Mississippi to educate me, but you know, um, I, 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 the only thing I know is either either we start, you know, reinventing what Dr. King and and uh, Fred Shuttlesworth and John Lewis were doing, uh, and you know, <laughs> there was an old saying back in those days: raise raise hell and go to jail. Um, and you know they. That's what they did to get attention to the fact that, you know, they were not being allowed to register and vote. Now, I think we're at a, you know, instead of being in a catch-22, um, you know, I think, again, we just have to work longer and harder and, and, and smarter, perhaps. Uh, but we have got to turn out, we've got to turn out, you know, the, every single vote we can to uh elect good people to public office so that we can make the changes that we all want to see uh, see made, um, starting with, you know, getting the John Lewis voting rights bill passed. Boy, it's amazing um, uh, what you're up against. Uh, okay, Wendy, and then uh, Jeffrey will give you a quick question, and Mary, uh, Wendy Wink-Liederman in Florida. Thank you, Harvey. And um, thank you so much, Governor. That was really a, just a profound presentation. I mean, really, like, almost brought me to tears in, in some parts there, because, I mean, the suffering is, is so real. We think of it in, in abstract concepts, but people are rotting in jail for no reason and spend their lives and lose everything. Um, I'm in Florida, so that kind of says a lie. Um, the, my first yeah. um, election. Yeah, it says it all. Um, my first election was the Bush election where I was watching the local news um, say that Gore won Dade County. And then a half an hour later, the national news is saying otherwise. Um, so it's kind of radicalized then. Um, what's happening now, um, just speaking about um, the lowering the um, the unanimous vote for juries uh, to be able to execute people. Um, there's also another bill that just passed that... Um, protects cops from excessive force. They, they can't be prosecuted for it. Basically, they'd get 180 days written notice um, before any kind of, um, any kind of, like any, I uh, can't think of the word, but um, disciplinary action, um, any uh, a defamation. So it, it's, it's really frightening. You have to be 30 feet away from the police to be able to film them. And what's even more terrifying is that uh, DeSantis is now going for a hundred million dollar private police force to support the National Guard. They would have all the toys of the military. They would have arrest powers. They would be um, trained and supported by Israeli private forces. Um, it'd be like, I think it's like 1500 volunteers. So I could just see the Proud Boys all lining up and it can be used for pretty much anything he would want to do so i'm just like imagining um these people at, at the polling places guarding polling places we saw all the people get arrested for voting on um, last year so um you know i i i'm just I, i'm inspired by everything that you're saying and just kind of sharing this information i don't know if i really have a specific question but i'd like to hear your thoughts and i just really want to applaud you and just tell you to keep doing what you're doing because i mean you've 
just such a, an incredible way of presenting this information. And you apologized for getting intense, but I, I, I really appreciate that you did. And I just hope you keep at it. Thank you so much.